If we have never met, my name is Thomas, and I get to be on staff here at Calvary, and I would agree with Jennifer, what a wonderful way to start Sunday morning to hear about the active work of Jesus Christ in people's lives. And if you have not been at church ever before, or maybe have not been at church for a long time, and you're just wondering, what is this community all excited about? Like, who is this Jesus that a bunch of people gather in a room to sing songs about, to get excited about, that pray to? Well, I want to tell you, Jesus is, is the greatest gift that God ever gave. Jesus is the Son of God, given to us to bring us home to be with him, to restore all things that are broken. And when we accept Jesus Christ, he begins to restore us in all of our brokenness. And we're in this series called Good News for All People. And that's a line right out of the Gospel of Luke. We're looking at this historical document that records all the facts, all the eyewitness accounts of what Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection, all that he taught us. And we, and we do this every single week. We open up the scriptures to see what did God have to say and what does God have to say to us today. This church does not gather around a speaker or a, a leader here to hear tips from Thomas. Like tips from Thomas are not helpful for anybody. But God's word is, and so if you have your Bible, let's open up to Luke 16. If you don't have a Bible with you, a couple options. There's one in front of you in really small print for those of you with really good eyesight. And then there's also this thing called an app, and you can get it from the app store. And it's the Crossway app, and I just encourage you to type in like ESV Crossway, download that, and then you can have a digital Bible that you can access anywhere and anytime. And we're going to go to Luke chapter 16. We're going to pick up right where we left off. And so if you haven't been journeying with us, let me, just, let me just catch you up real quick, because otherwise it won't make much sense. We're going to look at another parable, and parables are these, these stories that Jesus tells. They're metaphors. And a parable is, is literally something that you set aside alongside something to bring out a truth. And what Jesus is doing in all of these parables that we've been looking at is he lays down this metaphor, a story, so that those, his hearers could understand what he's up to. So something in the story is going to inform us what Jesus is doing and what the kingdom of God is like and, and who the kingdom of God is for and how the kingdom of God operates. And so if you are interested in who Jesus is, you want to know what these stories are because it'll tell us what he's about. And so he's been talking about these parables. And he's been talking about these parables of you know, the, like the kingdom of God and, and what Jesus is on mission to do is like a shepherd who's lost a sheep. And he leaves the whole herd behind because of his love and affection just for the one sheep. He goes and pursues that one sheep, just like, like Ben was telling us. Like he knows his sheep and he pursues them. That's what, that's what God's like. And so God's like this woman who, who loses a coin in her home and, and then she starts to like pull it apart until she finds her lost coin because it's a value to her. And he says God is like a father who has two sons and they're, and they're both lost. One's lost away from the house and, and one's lost inside the house and, and he loves them both and goes out to both of them to bring them back in because of his love for his son. See, God is the seeking saving, and then we see this celebrating from Luke 15. Every time a sinner comes to the Lord, like heaven erupts, he says. Heaven just is overjoyed, like this father's love throwing a banquet, like this woman's excitement of finding her coin, like this shepherd who has found his sheep. They celebrate, and that's what, that's what God is like. He's a seeking, saving, celebrating God. And he tells these stories to religious leaders, 
This is important that we remind ourselves, whenever we hear the parables in the scriptures, we want, to, we want to scan our eyes up to see, well, who is he talking to? And then we want to read all the way through to see, like, maybe there's a conclusion at the end that there's a point to this parable that I don't want to miss. And, and when we read up in these stories, remember, he's, he's talking to religious leaders, like these insiders who, who think they have their life all together. They're the people that show up on Sunday morning, and they're in danger of missing the God that they gather to worship. And so when Jesus is doing all of these teachings in his ministry, sharing the good news for all people, I mean, all kinds of people are flocking to Jesus. Like people who have train wrecked their lives are following Jesus. People who, who, the, who the religious community would say are outcasts are following Jesus. And in fact, Jesus is not only allowing them to follow him, he welcomes them to dine with him. He, he, he sits at a dinner table with all of these outsiders and he enjoys a meal with them. And, and culturally, that is a posture of acceptance. And religious leaders like these, these religious Pharisees who have what looks like on the outside their whole life buttoned up are angry with Jesus. Remember, this is the context. They're upset with him. It says they're, they're grumbling against him. In Luke 15... Verse 1 is where all these parables began. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. They're upset that Jesus is accepting outcasts, people who would not be accepted by the religious community. And so Jesus is telling these parables to help the religious people. You see that? The religious folks understand what he's up to. What, what, what the kingdom of God is like. And so he tells these parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the father who's lost his sons. And then last week we looked at this, this parable. He talks directly to the Pharisees about how they handle money. Because the Pharisees, this is chapter 16, verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money, like part of their problem is that they loved money and what money could do for them and Jesus has to unwind what money is, is for and what it does for others, how we use our money for others. But here they are, lovers of money. In verse 15 of chapter 16, he says this about the Pharisees. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. What Jesus is saying is, you love to put outward displays on for people, so that you'd exalt yourself in front of other people, that you would rise above others, thinking that you are better off before God, before other people, to show yourself off. And so here's the context going into the parable. You can't miss it. He's speaking to religious people who are grumbling that he's eating with the outcasts, who are lovers of money, and who love to put on display, an outward expression of how well they're doing. And Jesus says, okay, to the people who are upset that I'm eating with the outcasts, who love money and love to display outwardly their religion, but have no internal conviction of their heart, let me tell you a story. Here's the story. You ready? Luke 16, and we'll pick it up in verse 19. Just see if you can see who he's talking about. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. 
And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things and Lazarus in his manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send to him my father's, to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that they, so that's right, that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent, he said to them. If they do not, if they not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now that's a story. And the story is kind of chugging along until it has this reversal this incredible reversal of circumstances. And in this text, you're going to see parts of twos leading to one. There are two lives that are being lived. There are two deaths, which lead to two destinies. There are two requests made, but there's one solution. And so when we first look at it, there's just two lives. Jesus tells us there's two people. Okay, I'm just going to put two people at polar opposite extremes. So there's this rich man. And he eats sumptuously. When was the last, word, last time you used the word sumptuously? It means that he eats like in a celebration every single night. It's like instead of just waiting for your birthday or maybe Christmas or Easter or a really special time to, to have the finest meats or cheeses, the, the finest drinks of wine, he does this every single night. Like whatever his appetite is. I mean, he would be a great American be like, oh, I had Chinese last night. I'll have to have something else tonight, right? Like they could never eat leftovers. Leftovers were never existent in his house. He would always eat sumptuously every single night. Nothing was held from him. That's his, that's his wealth speaking. And not only does he indulge himself in what he eats, but he indulges himself in what he wears. Jesus says there was this rich man, and he wears purple robes and fine linens. Now, purple is a very rare dye at the time of Jesus. And so in order to dye materials purple would take a lot of wealth. And so this man has adorned himself in the most extravagant way to let everybody know how well he's doing. And then it says that he, he also adorns himself in fine linens, meaning that's, that's what he would wear. That's what, those are his undergarments. And so Jesus is painting a picture of a man who eats sumptuously every single night, withholds nothing from himself, who adorns himself externally and almost internally with the undergarments, the linens. Like through and through, this man is wealthy. Like a modern person would be someone who's obsessed with the brands that they wear, 
right? Like the, the nicest brands, like kind of showcase how well they're doing. And not only on the outside, but they have the nicest undergarments too. And they even mention to you like, oh, I'm wearing these, these underwear. They're made by blah, blah, blah. Just so you know, I'm doing that good. And so Jesus is putting this person, juxtaposition of a man named Lazarus. Now some people, some commentators would say, see, this, this is a clue. This is not a parable story because there's a proper name here. This is actually the only, pl- the only place in a parable in which Jesus names somebody. But it's probably not a clue that this is a real historical event. It's still a parable. It's, it's introduced as a parable. It flows like a parable. It concludes like a parable, open-ended. The name of Lazarus is not there because it's a historical event. The name of Lazarus is there as a key of who God knows. You see, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Gregory the Great, he said it this way, making an observation about why Lazarus is named in this parable. Gregory says, Now our Lord mentions the name of the poor, but not the, man of, not the name of the rich, because God knows and approves the humble, but not the proud. So the reason that he's named is if, if you're curious of, of who does God know, which is the child of God here? Well, let me tell you, his name is Lazarus. And then he creates another man just by the name Rich man. He's just a wealthy man. And those are the two lives that they live in. And Lazarus, it says, lies at the gate. He's crippled. And in the first century, in the way you would maybe take care of an impoverished person who is unable to work, unable to procure the needs for their life, is that you would bring them to the, the gate, the house of a wealthy individual, and put the onerous on them to care for him. And so Lazarus, who is sick, we see he has boils, is also crippled and poor, and he sits at this gate every single day. So this isn't just like, oh, there's poor people in the world. This is somebody the rich man's going to know every single day. In fact, we're going to find out that Lazarus is known by the rich man by name. The rich man knows who Lazarus is. He, he passes by, ignoring him every single day. It says, even the dogs came to lick his wounds. Now, you might have a dog. You might love your dog. Maybe your dog sleeps with you in in your bed, which is weird. You shouldn't do that. (laughs) But in the first century, dogs are not home pets and like beloved, and you don't buy them sweaters and have matching outfits with your pets, okay? In the first century, like dogs are like rabid wolves, and so the indication that even dogs are coming is like even just the, the ravidness of the streets is his only care. It's dire. So those are the two lives that are being lived. And then one day, they both die. And it says the rich man is, is buried. I mean, that's what you do to rich people. You make sure they have a great service. You spend a lot of money on their casket, and you bury them. But this has no mention of a burial for Lazarus, no, no care for Lazarus that way. But, but then immediately there is a reversal. And you just see this reversal that happens completely. The one who was poor becomes rich. The one who was rich becomes poor. The one who was in agony is comforted. The one who comforted himself is in agony. It's this complete reversal and Lazarus is taken to the side of Abraham. This is the presence of Abraham where God's children live. It's heaven. So Lazarus is there, and this rich man is in Hades, or it's hell. And there he's in torment and anguish. And this is why I think it's, it's metaphor, because whenever like Jesus speaks about hell all the time. 
Like one of the most, most vivid descriptions of hell comes from Jesus himself. And he speaks about hell, and it's, it's usually it's in metaphor, because you think of, of hell as what flames and fire, right? But then it's also spoken about of, of utter darkness. Can you have darkness and, and flames at the same time? If it's historical, probably not. So this is metaphorical language of what it is to be in Hades. Pastor Tim Keller, who, preached, who used to preach on the uh, East Coast in New York, he would say, you know, people would be really disturbed by the sense of hell in his congregation. So he would comfort them and say, it's, it's probably a metaphor when Jesus speaks of it in these terms of, of fire and darkness, in which they would have a little bit of reprieve, like, oh. And then he would add, it's, it's metaphor for, for something far worse. And it's like, oh, that sounds terrible. But you don't take the parables and try to build theological dogmatics of heaven and hell from parables. That's what the details are for. Though you could, you could do that in all the teachings of Jesus. But here Jesus is using a parable speaking about what is, what is a reality that's coming in metaphor. And so there is this rich man who's in Hades and he begins to make requests. And so we've seen two lives that are lived. We've seen two deaths that lead to two totally different destinies. And now there's these two requests that this rich man makes. And, and you would think if, if you have your image of hell is usually fire, brimstone, people screaming and yelling and saying, oh, I want out of here, I want out of here. Is that what Jesus describes here? It's actually fascinating. It's not. It's not that people are, are, are asking, get me out. What does the rich man want? To get Lazarus in. Isn't that fascinating? Like Lazarus is now restored. He's going to ask that Father Abraham would send Lazarus. Like, he still views himself as the rich man, though he's in hell. He still views himself as this proud man that Lazarus should serve. He says, Abraham, Father Abraham, send Lazarus on a chore for me. And you're like, I'm I'm so confused. You're, You're dictating what happens to Lazarus? Send Lazarus on a chore to dip his finger in water and come reprieve my thirst. That's the posture of the rich man. I think this is where the description of really heaven and hell fall apart for us in in our minds. As this terrible place that God's just sending people who don't want to go there. It's really the place in which God finally says to somebody, I'll leave you alone. Like for, For our whole life, we've been saying, just leave me alone, God, leave me alone, leave me alone. And then he just finally says, okay, I'll just, I'll just leave you alone. And then we sit there and we're like, well, I'm, I'm tormented here. Send my lackey, Lazarus. And it's like, no, remember, we're just leaving you alone. You just want us to leave you alone. We're just going to leave you alone. He says, Send Lazarus to reprieve my thirst. And Abraham says to him, it's his child. I love that. Like, Abraham is still so kind toward the man. doesn't say, like, are oh, you reprobate sinner? He's like, child. A child. Remember that in your life, Time, you received good things. And Lazarus and like man are bad things, but now he is comforted here and you're in anguish. This is that divine reversal. Now, you read that and you think, okay, what's, what's the point there, Jesus? Is it like you only save poor people and all rich people go to hell? That, you could interpret it that way. Is that, what, is that what Abraham's saying? Well, no. First and foremost, Abraham's in heaven. And Abraham's a really, really rich person in the Bible. And so it's not simply rich people go here and poor people go there. Or people, poor people are automatically saved and rich people are automatically damned. No, that's not at all what's going on. What Abraham is essentially saying is this. 
For Lazarus in his lifetime, because Lazarus actually means God helps. It's an interesting name, God helps. And you would look at Lazarus' life in his lifetime, you'd say, man, God doesn't seem to be helping him very much, does it? Unless you have a divine perspective. And what Abraham is saying is, for Lazarus, all of his struggles and torments were as bad as they will ever be in life. And for you, all of the joy and goodness that you experienced was as good as it would ever be in your life. And now after death in these realms, Lazarus is experiencing great joy and will never experience the hardship and sorrow again, which will not be true for you. And so it's not rich people go here and poor people go here. It's those who are children of God go home to be with God. That's where God wants to be. And those who do not love God and don't want to be at home with God, God says, I won't drag you here. I won't drag you here. I'll leave you alone. That's the picture of heaven and hell that God is giving us. And so then the rich man said, okay, well, well then go warn my brothers. Again, still not asking to leave. Well, go warn my brothers. Send Lazarus. Now, he's still, he's still trying to dictate. I'm the rich man. Lazarus, the poor man. I'm, I get to tell it Lazarus. I get to tell him what to do. He says, go send Lazarus to tell my brothers to warn them. This is blame shifting, right? I mean, this is like the rich man would be on Oprah for sure blaming his dad. <laughs> like, oh, man. I just didn't know. No one told me. In fact, that's my, that's my brother's estate. They don't know. And so send Lazarus to tell them. And Abraham says, no, they have Moses and the prophets. They have God's word. They're familiar with God's word. Now, remember, who is Jesus telling this parable to? Pharisees. Who has Moses and the prophets? The Pharisees. So can you see the Pharisees kind of like eyes being open, like Jesus is talking to us. See, often Jesus' biggest warnings about heaven and hell are warning the religious people who have the prophets, who think that they know what's going on, but their hearts are far from God. This is why it's, it's worthy to talk about it inside church, because we're the people that have Moses and the prophets, and we have the divine revelation of Jesus Christ too, and we don't want to miss it. We don't want to miss it. He says, okay, they have Moses and the prophets. And the Moses and prophets speak about how we are to take care of the poor. They, should, they already know about this. And they're the consequences of not. They, they know what it is to be the children of God revealed in Moses and the prophets. And so here's just two examples. Just so you, you can kind of see what they would automatically be thinking of. Here's, here's Deuteronomy. This is the laws of God. You're like, man, I'm so anti-laws of God. Well, maybe. Maybe you just don't know the laws of God. Here's the law of God. This is, this is Deuteronomy 15, 7. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his needs, whatever it may be. So here, here, here's, you know, the world operates with like, get rid of the poor. The children of God operate with, don't let there be a brother or a sister who falls into poverty but you with resources, give them whatever they need so they can eat and be clothed. That's in the law of God. That's the people of God. We're to care for those who are in need. That's from the law. That's Moses. And here's the prophets. Here's Isaiah 58. Here's the prophets speaking to the people of God, the religious leaders who are, who are upset that God's not really pleased with all of their religious external expressions, all their fasting, all their doing and the prophet just reminds the people of God, do you forget what kind of fast the Lord requires? This is six. 
Is not this the fast that I have chosen, I choose, to loose the bounds of wickedness and to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your houses when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Is the rich man doing any of that? No, the rich man is like the one that Jesus describes in Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, verse 42. He says, but woe to you, Pharisees, you religious people who look so good on the weekends. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb. It's like, that's, like you tithe even on your herb garden in your backyard. I mean, like that's how religious you are. But you neglect justice. And the love of God. Like you Christians have all the right answers, but you neglect justice and the love that God has for the world. It says, for you, woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces, right? So you, you tithe your mint, you put these external garments on to impress people with your religious pomp. And you neglect the man lying right outside your home. And you neglect justice. Not that these other things don't matter, but we do them as well as the weightier things of justice and mercy and care for one another. That's the description that, God ha that's that Jesus has for the Pharisees. And then in parable form, he's telling them to a people. Just, just get the contrast. To a people. What are they upset with Jesus about? They're upset that he's bringing the outcasts around his table. They're upset with how he uses money to care for others. And they're upset that he sees the interior of their heart. And so Jesus tells a story. Okay, you, you, you Pharisees who are upset that I'm not passing by, who are lovers of money and love to adorn yourself externally with religious garb, let me tell you a story of a rich man dressed in exter external garb who passes by a poor man. Who, who does the exact opposite of what I'm doing. And I'm going to tell you this divine reversal that happens, that Lazarus is with Abraham, and the rich man is in Hades in anguish. And then lastly, he's like, but send Lazarus. I mean, yes, they have the Moses and the prophets. The word of God, this, this is, it's not enough. That's what the man's saying. This is not enough to gather and hear it read and say, thus says the Lord. That's not enough. What they need is a miracle. Right? What the Pharisees are always asking Jesus to do? Perform signs. Like do something to impress us. So send Lazarus back from the dead, and that will be so impressive to my brothers that they will repent. Which gets us to, to, the, to the crux of the matter. Why is the man in Hades? Is it because he's rich? No. Is it even the fact that he misused his wealth? No. Why is he in Hades? Why will his brothers be in Hades? If they don't what? Repent. You see it there in the text? Luke 16. This is the whole key to the matter. Otherwise, we can get, the, we can get real sideways here. 
Verse 30, and he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. They won't come here. And the way you don't come here is one thing. There's one solution. You repent. You, you turn from your riches to the Lord. You turn from your abuses to the Lord. You turn from your sin to the Lord, which is what all the sinners are doing in Luke 15. They're coming to Jesus. He says, if a man from the dead would come, then they would repent because this isn't enough to cause anyone to repent. And Abraham says, no, no. Even if someone comes from the dead, they still will not believe. Now, it's fascinating that the name Lazarus is used in this parable. And in another gospel, this is the gospel of John, a different story completely, okay? There's another man named Lazarus. And this is Jesus' friend. He has, two, he has two sisters, Mary and Martha. And Lazarus is not a poor man who's, who's stricken with illness and laying at the gate of a rich man. He's actually pretty wealthy, but Lazarus dies. Remember this story? This is John 11. Lazarus actually dies, is in the tomb. Jesus shows up four days too late at the memorial service. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come on out. And all these religious leaders, Pharisees, scribes, priests are watching what's going on. And they see Lazarus, who's been dead for four days, come out of the tomb. And he's living. And you know what they want to do? Kill him. It's great. Here's John chapter, chapter 12. Oh my gosh. It's just like, if you really think that people are going to respond because they see these things, it's just not true. This is John chapter 12, verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, who had been raised from the dead, so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death. So you think, okay, if they, if they would just see Lazarus, they would believe. And just like, no, they won't. No, they actually won't. Because you know, I'm actually going to do that. I'm actually going to do that sign for you. And you're going to see Lazarus. And instead of being like, oh, my gosh. Jesus is the promised Christ. I repent of all my religious activities that I'm doing that's keeping me from God, and I come to him, no, they're going to be like, hmm, that's a threat. We should put to death the miracle. We should put him to death. We should put him away. That's their response. And so what do we learn? Is that God's word is sufficient. This is what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, that, that believing comes from hearing, and hearing the words of Christ. There might be new faith that's awakened in this room just because this is God's word. It's not my word. It's God's word. And God's word does not return to him void, but it awakens his sheep. And maybe you have been a wandering sheep for a long time, but you hear his voice today. It says, no, this is God's word, and I repent and turn to him. Now, in this story of the rich man and the Lazarus, it's so easy to forget the storyteller. It's all really about Jesus, isn't it? Remember, stories are metaphors laid aside what Jesus is up to. What's Jesus up to? Does Jesus walk by the Lazaruses of the world? No. That's why the religious people are upset with him, is that he will not just walk by, but he sees you. He sees you and he knows you by name. He sees you in your sickness of sin. He sees you in your state of need. He sees you as crippled as we are, unable to save ourselves, lying at his gate. And he comes out and he says, 
son and daughter, live. Live. Like that's what baptism is. It's, you just saw it. Buried in the likeness of his death, you, you're joined in Christ's death. Like Jesus really went to the grave, and baptism is this visual illustration of being buried with Christ, and then what? Raised to what? New life. Those who are buried with Christ raise, are raised with Christ. And that's exactly what we see with Lazarus. They're buried with Christ, and then he's with Christ. He's with Abraham in God's house. And so Jesus is the one who refuses to just walk by, who doesn't dress himself in all this religious garb, who being in the very form of God, humbled himself, taking on flesh. He dressed himself. The God of the universe took on flesh. Like These are the dirty garments that God took on. Why? To save you. Why? Because he loves you. The only question is, will you respond? Will you respond? You have to humble yourself and repent and receive the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he begins his transforming, transforming work of making you something new, of changing you from the inside out. And so then for the Christian, there's no fear of death. Absolutely no fear of death. The last enemy to be defeated is death itself. And Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? So the sting of death is sin, and, and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God. Thanks, thank you, God, that our victory over death is through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. And so I just want to conclude with the, the, the next sentence that comes out of 1 Corinthians 15. So let this be our benediction. So if you, if you actually want to put your notes together, put your Bible together. 1 Corinthians 15. After death being swallowed up and victory in our Lord Jesus Christ, he simply says, now, now dearly loved brothers and sisters, who are in the church who believe, be steadfast. And firm, firm in your faith. That you would not grow weary of doing good. For you know that your labor in the Lord, your labor, your work in the Lord, your good works in the Lord are not in vain. And so church, as we leave today, just know this, that Jesus Christ refuses to pass by you. He's willing to welcome you into his house, at his table, no matter what you have done. And the final work is the work of destroying death itself. And those who are in Christ, buried in his death, will be raised to new life for all who believe. Can I pray for us? Father God, I thank you that you would give us vivid teaching. Those of us who have Moses and the prophets, the gospels of Jesus Christ, Father, I pray that you would draw us to yourself, that we would not be proud like the rich man, but that we would be humble, that we would be teachable, that we would come to you. And so, Father, we give you thanks for the lives that have been transformed to announce their faith in front of a community to follow you all the days of their life. And, and we ask that you would be with them, that you would mark them, that you would let your presence be known in their life in a very palatable way. I pray for us who have been far from you, Lord, may we come near again. 
Father, I pray for anyone in the house of the Lord who has known you all the days of their life but have never surrendered their life. I pray they would do that this day. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray this. Amen. If we can pray for you, our prayer team will be down here in the front. Don't sit back into Monday and whatever you got going on without having somebody pray for you. But we love you. God loves you. Go in peace.